Current Weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. Figures from housing charities show a record number of homeless families in Dublin and Cork. Well, are you confident that in 12 months' time that there will finally be progress because we seem to be running just to stand still at the moment? Well, I'm confident that there's progress now. I want to see if there's going any plans or any discussion at the Cabinet about legislation to deal with the exploitation of homeless people. There's absolutely a correlation between the fact that we've got rid of bedsits and we now have far more uh, homeless individuals, particularly men, on the streets. What I will not tolerate is people living in totally inappropriate types of accommodation and some of the bedsits that were available, particularly in Dublin, were totally inappropriate. We've also just under 4,000 uh, children homeless in hotel and accommodation. These are children whose future is very bleak unless they're rescued from their present situation. And we don't have the manpower and we don't have the resources to do it. Because we've seen uh, a number of very serious breaches of what would normally never happen uh, if there were not a a prolonged housing crisis in uh, the way landlords behave in particular, but also unofficially the way landlords or new type of landlords behave. You're listening to No Fixed Abode on Dublin Digital Radio. No Fixed Abode this month is speaking to Brian McLaughlin, Head of Communications, and Anne Burney, Director and Volunteer Manager with Inner City Helping Homeless. Both have been volunteering with the organisation and have now taken on managerial roles. Yeah, so I mean, from from my perspective, a lot of our stuff will be done through our social media platforms and through the website. Um, In this day and age, especially in the social media era, you can be directly communicating with people within a matter of a couple of seconds. It's not a case anymore where people are waiting for newspapers or waiting to see what's on television to hear what's happening out there. We can communicate directly with people via our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram and via our website. So combined, we have a probably nearly 50,000 people over all of our platforms. So we can literally touch people straight away. If something happens, for example, we can react to it straight away and people are going to see it online. So, you know, from my perspective, it's about keeping people up to date on what's going on, be it within the homeless crisis, be it fundraising events, volunteering opportunities. So it's really just a matter of keeping on top of communicating with people and making sure people are aware of what we're dealing with and what's going on out there. So you would manage the various the various social media platforms that ICH run. And how have you found that? Is that a new experience for you? Is that something you've done previously professionally? No, it's not. So, I mean, that would be definitely a, a new thing for me. I mean, like most people, I would have my own social media platforms and accounts. Um, but when I started in ICHH, it, originally it was just as a, an outreach volunteer on the streets once a week. And it just progressed into where we are now. So it's something I've kind of had to learn on the fly, but it's something I've enjoyed and it's something that we all support each other with here. So, you know, it's not just me necessarily that has to do it. There's other people that can cover and help as well. So, you know, it's a big team effort here. Great. So would you be able to break down what platforms you use and how you use them? Like what what would kind of a typical shift or day managing the social media and communications for the group involve? 
Yeah, so it really would depend. I mean, we would try to get out a couple of posts, say, on Facebook, at least a couple of posts a day. Uh, we would also put out one at night for our outreach teams when they go out on the street just to kind of clarify our phone number and stuff for people that if they see anyone sleeping outside around the city, they can get in touch with us. Uh, obviously, there'd be a lot of messages we would get. You know, it can be quite a diverse messages from people wanting to donate, you know, money or clothes or food to people looking to volunteer and to people that are, you know, homeless themselves and don't know where to turn or don't know what to do. And they can reach out to us. You know, you could be getting messages anytime from six in the morning to two o'clock the following morning. So um, it really is a diverse role insofar as, you know, no two messages you get are the same. Yeah, you're managing the communications out from the group, but you're also receiving offers of help and requests and a, a whole variety of of messages in and you need to channel those as appropriate within the group absolutely yeah and i mean i, t- I suppose that's where there's a slight difference between maybe facebook and, and twitter for example and um, with twitter you know there's only 240 characters so you can be very very direct in a short space of time you know and for example our, our ceo anthony has just put out a tweet there about an hour ago we have a, a mother and son downstairs with nowhere to go for the night so he has put a tweet out already so you know within a few minutes you're getting huge reactions to that he he tweeted the minister directly to ask you know what's he going to do for the this family that are downstairs in our in our offices and now you won't get a response from it but it's a direct way of communicating with the likes of the minister and other people within homeless services right so it's it, it sounds really fast paced and quite responsive and do you find that you get an opportunity to like reflect back on you know bigger campaigns or you're kind of focused in the doing the day-to-day of the social media management that you you don't get an opportunity to perhaps do that no we will keep good track on on how things work for us i think one thing that we've always done as an organization is we adapt and learn from from maybe from mistakes even you know it's one of those things if you're doing something (laughs) yeah if you're doing something for the first time you're not going to get it perfect but the thing is to come away from it learning from where you made mistakes and what you need to do to improve things so you know we we actually have a charity partnership with facebook so that's been a big thing for us over the last couple of months because they've worked with us in you know best practices and advice and so forth so we're already seeing an improvement with regards to the facebook page and for example we now have a direct donate button you know that we can put on all of our posts and on our page so it's a bit more seamless absolutely so people you know instead of people necessarily having to come to us and say how do i donate to you or where do i donate to you anyone looking at any of our posts now will see a direct donate button and they can just come along and and donate to us you know we're we're a non-funded organization so we rely on those types of donations right so brian you mentioned twitter and facebook what other means do you communicate would you still release press releases have you had many journalists and from radio and television in with the organization yeah so that'd be the, the second part i suppose of, of my role and we any press release that we put out will be sent by myself so um we've in the last couple of years we've really kind of i suppose heightened our media profile insofar as the media outlets out there know that you know whether it's six o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock at night if there's a story to react to we react straight away so there is no office hours here for us you know these things can be sent at any time of the day or night so for example we had a press release out over the weekend straight away we had a radio interview for myself that appeared on 98fm f104 q102 and all of the other syndicated radio stations it was in online newspapers and so forth within a matter of an hour or two so again i think that's that's part of the 
part of the appeal of ICHH maybe to media people is that they know, you know, we're not here to do a set nine to five kind of job. So they know that pretty much they can get either myself or our CEO Anthony at any time of the day or night. So I think we've become an organisation that they all go to when something happens because they know they're going to get a reaction from us. Yeah, that's really great. Um, I suppose moving on from kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis and like you said, the responsive nature of it, both with the traditional media and with social media, I wanted to talk about on a broader scale how to maybe balance communicating your message and talking about people's issues with homelessness and maybe privacy and other issues like that do you ever have people who who need who need to kind of communicate their story but are very worried about impact it might have on their family or I suppose the social stigma that might be attached to those issues how do you kind of balance that well I mean we're very straightforward in that we would never want anyone to put themselves out there if that's not something they want to do I mean we have a a kind of a rule within the organisation that we've had, you know, we're in our fifth year of operation now. We don't take pictures of people that are homeless, you know, whether they're out on the street being assisted by our volunteers or whatever the case may be. I mean, we would, you know, a couple of times a year, we'd have a photographer that might go out with the outreach team and follow them around. But the rule is very clear. We don't want anyone taking faces, you know, photographs of someone's faces because there's a lot of people out there that maybe are proud and don't want family to know they're in that situation. You know, privacy is something I think we're all entitled to in this day and age. So, you know, we would be in a situation where we could maybe communicate someone's story without giving any detail of who they are or where they're living or anything like that. So for people that don't want to put themselves out there, they're happy for us to go out and tell what's happening, but that's something that we're very, very proud of. We we do not want to be that organisation that would step over someone's privacy because we're all entitled to that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I suppose with certain cases, I'm thinking, you know, in the past couple of years, it it becomes like a focal point about one person. And that's good because I think it helps people to relate. But as you said, that individual will lose their privacy and it's not it's not uh, maybe a great way to help someone who's in a vulnerable situation anyway. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, there's there's a lot of people out there that would would like their story to be heard, but then they fear a repercussion from, you know, from homeless services or from, from the department. You know, there's, there's people that are in family hubs and hotels and bed and breakfasts and they would happily share photographs and stories with us, but they're afraid to go more public than that because they fear that they will be classed as troublemakers yeah. or there might be a consequence for them speaking out. You know, we do see people that do want to go out and tell their story because they're at the end of their tether where they feel that even though their privacy is going to be gone, they feel they have to tell their story for other people. So they will go out and say it. But, you know, we would never, ever force anybody into doing it. If someone wants to do it, we'll happily support them. Of course. Um, And I kind of wanted to move now about how you feel the public's reaction to this story has maybe changed over the past year? Did you notice any particular, you know, period in your time managing the communications for the group that, you know, people were really interested or do you ever worry about a fatigue about homelessness issues? No, I think I think if anything, you know, the, the biggest thing that we would constantly be pushing, especially in the last 18 months, is that the, the face of homelessness has changed in this country. You know, the face of homelessness now is children. I mean, you're, you're looking at a nearly 300 percent increase in the number of homeless children in the last two and a half years. So for us, it's about changing people's perception that are outside of homelessness, because 
to a lot of people, homeless has a, a stigma of maybe someone that has an addiction issue or a mental health problem that is out in the doorway with a cup in their hand looking for money. And I think that's where we're trying to change it for people. You know, we've had so many children come through the doors of this office over the last couple of years. You know, people don't see that. It's not something that's visible to them on the street. So we would always do our best to to be as up to date as possible with people and to advise them on what's going on out there. You do tend to see, sadly, there's been so many deaths on the streets over the last couple of years. That type of post is something that's going to get a huge response from people because it's something that people really relate to when they see someone has passed away. It's I shocking. Think, isn't it? it shocks yeah. them into responding and, and questioning and asking why and asking us what's going on out there. So, you know, it, it is a case where, like, for example, an, another side to successful post, if you want to put it that way, is we've a, we've had a lot of children that with their communion money or their confirmation money have gone and bought items for us that we could bring out in the street at night for our volunteers. So you're seeing younger generations starting to understand that homelessness is not normal and to, to understand that it's it's a big issue in this country now. And when, when a child comes in And it in impacts here, children like them who they relate to and then want to help. Absolutely. And if a child goes out and spends 50 euro from their, their confirmation money and buys toiletries and, and food and items for us, you know, we'll always ask the parent if they're okay with us putting the picture up on Facebook, for example. But again, that's something that really resonates to, to people because the response you'll see over and over again is, well, that child is maybe putting some of us adults to shame because they, they're going out and trying to help and maybe we're not. So I think that's those type of posts really do have a big impact and a big viewing platform if you want to put it that way yeah so one kind of key message I'm getting from you there is that the face of homelessness has changed and it now really is young people and children whose whose parents or caregivers for whatever reason aren't able to provide them with accommodation or somewhere secure to live or the whole family might be experiencing issues with that are there any other kind of key messages that you really feel like in your time here you want to get across or have kind of come through in all your various social media posts or dealings with other media organizations no i mean i think the, the biggest thing from again from our perspective is how much the homeless crisis has gotten worse over the last two years i mean from when i started to where we are now it, it's gone to a national emergency level and um, we're at the stage where the Taoiseach himself said it's a national emergency but then doesn't actually do anything to address that emergency bar what they've been doing which isn't enough and I think that that's another side to it for us it's 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 trying to make people understand that worse as in you know so the solutions aren't working people there's just more people who are homeless like you know when you say yeah, worse yeah so, so my definition of that would be number one the amount of people i mean the, the amount of people and children that are homeless now compared to when i started you know it's gone up huge numbers we're just under the ten thousand mark by the official numbers we we know that's we're well over that that's the reality of it um but you know for us we've always been beating the drum of social and affordable housing being the main solution to, to the homeless problem and we're still not seeing political will to actually build enough social and affordable housing so all that's happening is we're seeing private rentals go go up through the roof we're at, we're at a stage in dublin where the average average rent in dublin is two thousand euro we're seeing we've had to get involved over a couple of weeks ago where there was a mass eviction from a slum landlord to a number of students who were who were here to study mm, english yeah it was at the summer hill yeah exactly that's yeah. exactly the one yeah so i mean again it, it's all we're seeing is numbers getting worse and worse 
yet the solutions still aren't being implemented. They're not doing what needs to be done to fix the problem. So all we can keep doing is shouting that out. You know, at the, uh, one thing we, we consistently would say is that a lot of the a lot of the other organisations in, in homeless services that are funded by the government, you know, at times might have been restricted in what they say and how vocal they are about the problem, where as we don't have that issue, we're not funded by them. So we, we kind of speak the truth and we say what we see and we, we tell people what our volunteers see day in, day out to try and show them that this is a huge, huge, huge problem and it's still not being addressed properly. Yeah. And we were talking there about numbers and I know that the rough sleeper count came out recently and Minister Owen Murphy commented that these figures showed a positive trend towards a decline in numbers. Did you feel that was reflective of some of what you had experienced like ICHH as a group or you know, do you have any comment on those figures? Yeah, well, I mean, the the last sleeper count, rough sleeper count, which was taken just before Christmas, had increased over two hundred, which was the you know our organisation for the first time in November of last year assisted over two hundred people in one night, and that was the first time in the history of the organisation. The official rough sleeper count for that winter count, I believe, was around about the hundred and eighty mark. Now, one of the issues again that we see is that. Over Christmas time, the, the government will implement emergency beds for the winter period and those winter beds, you know, start to close come the 1st of March. So the numbers were, again were down. I mean, the number was 110 that that was counted on the official count. You know, our organisation had been dealing some nights with up to 130. Um, but one thing, we, again, we, we would consistently ask them is, is what route do you go and what where do you go to, to do your count? I think it's for me, if you are trying to really fix a problem, one of the first things I would be doing in that situation is I would be coming to an organisation like ICHH and saying, can you show me where your volunteers go every single night so that we can go and check those places? So I think they do quite a limited, they do quite a limited, you know, count in regard to around the city centre, whereas our organisation and our vans will go outside the city centre to the parks and to the squats or wherever we think people are, you know, we will go back and if, if we engage with someone on one night, they're added to our van's route and they're contacted the next night and we try and keep up the, the engagements with them. Right, okay. Um, so Brian, earlier on, you're talking there about the posts and how you're kind of responsive a lot, a lot of the time to different media organisations. How many people are involved in the communication side? Like what, is there a team? Is it just yourself? Um, so it, realistically, it's probably myself and Anthony when it comes to the, the press releases, for example, mm. it would mainly be the two of us. Um, when it comes to the social media side of it, again, it would probably be myself and Anthony with Pauline, our head of fundraising, would also you know get involved. But then from a communications perspective within the organisation, you know, and it'd probably be the, the main one for communicating with volunteers and keeping them up to date on things. Right. And I suppose now would be a good time to speak to Anne Bernie, the head of volunteering. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. Um, so it's really interesting to speak to you, I suppose. Um, there's a National Volunteering Week at the moment, so it's kind of very much in the spotlight. I'd be really interested in hearing from you why you decided to take on the role of volunteer manager. Did you start off volunteering yourself? It goes back about four years at this stage. I got involved. I had just retired from work and I had a lot of time on my hands. And my daughter had been on a work placement 
with ICHH and I became interested through her. I at that stage, I didn't really know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to do with my time, but uh, this seemed like a really, really worthwhile cause. It was a very new organisation and everybody just seemed to be trying to do the very best that they could with very limited resources. And it was just the goodwill that really, really um, attracted me. So initially I helped out just with some of the admin work and it snowballed from there. Um, a few months later, then the, the volunteer coordinator position became available and I kind of thought, could I do this work? And uh, as I had a few months behind me, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try. There was nobody else available to do it, like a lot of jobs that people fall into. <laughs> and I I took up the gauntlet then. So I've been here ever since and I think we're kind of you know I have a small team of people around me now and I have to say they're great and they're I couldn't live without them at this stage couldn't live without them at this stage so we have approximately it varies um depending on winter and summer we probably have around 200 volunteers um, so it varies and then it increases in the summer months when people are free actually no it would be the opposite it increases in the winter time because we would have a number of work college students uh, work placement students from college who help us out and we have a lot of of people coming up to Christmas who find that they have time on their hands and we have events coming up at Christmas time that we highlight so people become involved then um, I also think at Christmas time, people think of children and when people hear the numbers of children that are basically homeless, it really, really hits a chord with them and they want to help at that stage. Um, so also at this stage, I think a lot of people, even some of our own volunteers, have been hit by homelessness in some way or another. Um, either a family member has almost become homeless, has become homeless. They may have been uh, through a particularly tough time themselves and they realise now that it's not people who are in addiction who are the only homeless out there. There are a lot of people who mostly through financial reasons or through marriage breakdown or those kind of things that people find themselves without a home. And where people would have thought maybe a couple of years before, this will never happen to me. Suddenly they realise, actually, this is going to happen to me if I don't do something or if I don't find out what I can do. And that's how uh, some of our volunteers have come to us. And then we have professional people who are in the in, you know, who are nursing or teaching and they have been hit by it too around because they see it every day of the week in their daily jobs. So um, that has triggered a chord with them as well. We have volunteers from every walk of life. We have volunteers from 18 up into their 70s. So we have a wide number, a wide range of people. I have people who come in to volunteer just because they don't want to let the rest of the team down. Um, people become they enjoy coming in and seeing the other volunteers and then that they all go out as a team they all know the service users and they really want to make a difference yeah that sounds like a lovely as you said team environment for all the volunteers it's a really nice feature it's Mm -hmm. kind of 
great we, feeling. Yeah, we try to promote the team side of things because um, not everybody can do something on their own. Uh, people sometimes they don't know what to do so being part of a team then you have the backup with you okay, and of how to, exactly exactly you know, and you learn from other people and you learn from other people's experiences yeah. as well and similar to the way I asked Brian about kind of the team or, or the kind of structure around his role would you be able to talk about you know as volunteer manager you know, you sit down to organise shifts. Could you just, just break it down for me how it actually plays out for you when you're sitting down to do your work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes I wonder how we actually get it done, but it, it comes together. I have to <laughs> say people <laughs> are so generous with their time and they're very understanding by times. Um, we have a number of rosters. So we have people who work across the organization doing various different jobs. Outreach is our frontline service. So everything else that happens in the office is towards the frontline service. We have people who man our reception desk from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. We have people who come in and make sandwiches um, and we have our van drivers during the day. We have people who come in and just help to keep the supplies moving wherever they're needed. So it, it takes a lot of organisation to do that. Um, I have uh, one person who does the outreach volunteering. So she looks after. So um, outreach, could you just maybe explain kind of the terminology? OK, it's funny how you learn jargon and you don't realise that <laughs> other people don't know what it is. Um, outreach then, as I say, outreach is our frontline service. And what that involves is volunteers coming in late at night, usually around quarter past ten getting all the gear together, all the supplies together, and then they head out on the street at 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, then they they begin to interact with rough sleepers who are on the street. And they do that until about one o'clock in the morning. Our van and our van driver and our uh, support person in the van, they will go further afield. They will travel out where they know tents are, where they may have gotten calls from the public about somebody who has seen a rough sleeper. Um, they go to people who are living maybe in abandoned cars or even in their own car, maybe car parks, all these places that people feel that they're away from the man on the street, but they're away from people who will see them, Safe that they're hidden away. And, exactly. Yeah. So sometimes people are in places we never even think of. It's usually maybe a caller um, some people call themselves, some people may have a family member who will call on their behalf who are worried about them, or it may be actually somebody who is passing by in a bus who may see something and they will ring us to say that um, could we call out to see someone. And that's usually where we get our calls from. So yeah, that's a good overview of the kind of outreach role. Um, I know as well, fundraising is a key kind of volunteer role. Would you have any volunteer fundraisers at the moment or is that something you're looking to build? We would love to build on it. We really would. We have um, a couple of people who do fundraising for us in the office at the moment. Uh, Pauline will be, she is our fundraising coordinator and she gets involved with various different um 
events that are going on. Brian would also help out, as he knows well. Um, Anthony, anybody who is here in the office, if they have a good idea, we'll always explore it. Uh, but Pauline would be the the main person, the the person who who knows most of who knows anything about fundraising at this stage. Um, other people come and go because as it's a voluntary position, um, as we're all volunteers, it tends to be a bit more difficult for people. It's fine when it's just small events, but when it comes to the bigger events and you need to give more time, then some people can find it difficult. So some people will come on board for one event and some people will come on board to help out in the background on bigger events. Um, we have a number of events through the year, but our biggest event is always is the one coming up to Christmas that maybe a lot of people are aware of. It's um, we work in conjunction with Transdev, the Lewis people, mm. and we have our event day at Connolly Station. That is a huge event and every volunteer in the organisation, no matter what they do, is called on for that day. And I have to say the last three years that we've done it has have been amazing. People have just come out of the woodwork and people who haven't been able to volunteer maybe for a couple of months because they're busy or they're in college will come out for this day. And it starts, the volunteers start coming at half five in the morning and they can still be going at nine o'clock that night. It is one of those days where it's just, it's a, it's an amazing day. It amazes me anyway. Yeah, it's and it, course, it absolutely, yeah. and it amazes me how volunteers say, yes, I'll give you a couple of hours that day. And they arrive in at 10 and they're still here at five and they say, yeah, I'm just staying for one more hour or for another hour and a half. And then I really have to go. So people become very, very, very enthusiastic about it and um, volunteers are volunteers for fundraising it, it's pretty tough people are very put off by fundraising they have this idea oh they're going to have Charity, me shaking a bucket is, uh, you yeah. know they're going to have me you know shaking a bucket everywhere I go or things like that and it's not like that we do bucket collecting of course and we do bag packing in supermarkets that have been really very kind to us and very supportive of us but there are other things there's paperwork to be done there's you know pooling ideas there's um all these kind of team you know you're Following not just left yeah, yeah and you know just finding out finding out from other organizations what kind of events they do and you know what works best what doesn't work there's a whole lot of of uh, team orientated brainstorming around fundraising as well so there, there is a lot there that people can get involved in even if they don't want to go out bucket collecting as such <laughs> you know everybody dreads that yeah yeah no it seems to be the kind of fear yeah yeah people yeah I was wondering just from the volunteer manager and communications manager role what overlap have there been people that have contacted you and that have maybe skill sets or have experience working in communications or uh, is there ever been oh gosh yeah we get we get a lot of people who who will come on to us and say I'd love to get involved and my background is this so I feel I could help in this and uh, anybody who rings with any expertise if we have a place for it we'll find it for them you know a lot of people end up maybe doing um 
more than they expected to do. They may start off doing outreach and then they see because I would send out communications about things that we need or, you know, uh, some sort of expertise that we need. Is anybody available to do whatever it may be? And it's amazing how many people come forward and say, oh, well, I trained in this or I've done courses in this or that's my day job or I know someone who can do this. And before you know it, they're doing more than they actually signed up to do. I probably have um, a few volunteers, I'll say, who do maybe three or four different things within the organization. They start off doing one, but then they end up doing more than that. And that's how. Yeah. And people get a great overview or a great insight into the organization when they do that, because you see it from every angle. And I often said I'd love for people who are only here during the day to see what happens at night. But obviously they're here during the day because they're not available and vice versa, that people who go out at night would come into the office and see what it is that we do during the day to go towards what they do at night. Um, Because it's such a long day. Realistically, we have people here from nine in the morning until half past two the following morning. That's how long this whole operation takes. You're trying to do it with volunteers and people just giving of themselves and their time. So it's a pretty big ask. So you can imagine there are people who never meet other people. Once a year we have our volunteer appreciation night and it always amazes me that there will be people who will meet other people and say, I never knew you worked here. Maybe a neighbour. I've actually had two people who were um, uh, in-laws and they didn't know that yeah. each other was actually volunteering in some capacity here. So that's always quite amazing to see. And uh, people make great friendships here. People have, you know, they will socialize outside afterwards. They just become great friends. Uh, even myself, I discovered that um, I uh, I was actually related to somebody who was here that I didn't know I was related to before. (laughs) And I also met somebody who um, a wedding that I was at, she was a a bridesmaid at it. And I didn't know that either. So it's quite amazing the people that you meet and the people that you get to know and the people you become extremely fond of. Um, And, you you know, we've had people who've had to um, who've had to stop volunteering due to ill health. And that's kind of very sad when that happens because people become so involved here. They want to be here all the time. And then when they have to go, it it can be quite sad to see them have to leave us. We've had people who've come in um, who are in college and do their work placement and they have to do so many hours and they come back and they stay volunteering with us after they go. And that's great to see because it means that their time here. Yeah, they felt it was they valuable. They felt it was worth it. And it, that's great to see. And it's a great boost for everybody else then to know that, you know, while we might have little quibbles and moans and groans in the office and who didn't do whatever, but that people actually see that we're doing a good job and that we're, we're making a difference and that it is worthwhile. And yeah. that's what keeps us all coming back. Yeah, of course. We're like a family in this office here, you know, so all families will have rows. <laughs> they have laughs. They have they, they'll pick each other up when they're feeling down. But overall, everyone sticks together and looks after each other. And I think there is a, a real difference in, in our organization, I, I would say, compared to other organizations. And again, the fact that no one gets paid 
the fact that the, the it, we aren't a government funded organisation means we're all fighting the same cause for the same reasons. Um, one thing we, we consistently say to each other and we've said it on interviews before is I think our organisation would happily close our doors tomorrow and lock the doors if there was no homeless crisis, you know, and I think that's what differentiates us from, from other organisations. So, you know, as Anne said, there's some great stories about how people have gotten involved here. And, you know, for example, when I started, I did one, came out to do one night only on outreach because I, I didn't realise I'd be able to actually do a night on outreach and go to work and function the next morning. So yeah. the first time I did outreach, I took the next day off because I thought it would be a very late night. And then I got home at quarter past one and I thought I could do this once a week, no problem. And it won't affect my work over the course of the next week or two from talking about to people in my job who asked me, how did I get on? Suddenly within a couple of weeks, there's four of us from the one company all volunteering. One of the guys has now left the company. He moved into a new company. He now has his own team of four people from where he works now. So it, it kind of, it, it just snowballs, you know. Pe yeah, people pe see how they can fit it mm -hmm. into their lives. Exactly. In, even in a small, you know, once yeah. a month or once every yeah. every few months, whenever they're free. And that's it. Yeah, so as I say, it, it, you know, the one thing about our organisation is some, someone comes out for one night on outreach and, you know, it's not necessarily that they try to recruit other people, but, you know, other friends will often say, how did you get on that night you were out with Inner City Help and Homeless? And they'll tell the story of their night and it, it, it piques the interest of someone else to say, oh, actually, I might try that for one night as well. And I think we've had a lot of volunteers over the years that were sourced from that particular way of, exactly. you know, word of mouth between volunteer to volunteer and suddenly the team starts to get bigger. And I think that's essential for for us. You know, um, we are overall a small organisation. So, uh, you know, any bit of volunteering, as Anne said, you know, if someone has three or four hours a week, you know, free to donate and give us their time, it's, it's always greatly appreciated. I think also the fact that everybody that you meet here is a volunteer. Everybody wants to be here as opposed to has to be here. That's a whole different thing altogether. Um, and I do think, you know, we that's while it's a disadvantage because you are relying on people's um, availability. It's also uh, it, it's also an advantage from the point of view with other organisations. You have the them and us feeling. And I know that they have difficulty merging paid staff with volunteers because you will always get the, the divide there where they say, oh, well, I'm not doing it because I'm not paid. They're paid. Let them do it. And there is this them and us kind of culture. We don't have that because we're all here because we want to be here. In fact, sometimes you're kind of saying, will you go home? <laughs> stop, stop what you're doing. Go home. That's what we say uh, to Anne on a regular basis, by the way. I just want to clarify that. Uh, among others, among <laughs> others. But, you know, and, you know, no matter. And I, I'm always amazed how good people are. You know, if somebody has to, if somebody is sick and can't do sandwiches, I only have to ask and there'll be, I'll do them, I'll do them. Sure, I'll do them. Sure, if I'm not doing that, I'll do them. I'll get someone, I'll get a friend to help me. There's always people are so willing to, to help out. And that's amazing to me. That's yeah. really amazing to me. So. Yeah, long. I I hope I was going to say long may it last, but in actual fact, I hope it doesn't last because when it the means need is that, there, may it last. Yeah, and when, exactly. When it's still exactly. exactly. I mean, there's yeah. nothing I'd like better than someone to knock at the door and say, "You've nobody to see anymore. Yeah. There's nobody on the street anymore." Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, that's what that's what we aim to see. So it's the one job we're all hoping that some stage we'll all stop doing it. What we're going to do after that? Because 
I think everybody will miss everybody else and we just have to start up yeah, something you else. Won't be yeah, idle for long. we'll have to start yeah. something else. And you won't be yeah. idle for long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one kind of more overall question about volunteering. Is there a time expectation? Because I know even among my friends and, and other people I would speak to about volunteering, they really like the principle, but they wouldn't see how they can fit it into their schedule. Like how how do people kind of communicate their availability to you and what's your kind of time expectation really? As I was saying, we have a number of roles here. So we do try to work a role around the person. So if a person is only available during the day, well then there's roles here that happen during the day. We have reception. We have and you don't have to be very technologically minded um, if you can answer a phone. That's good for us, too. If you can make a sandwich, that's great for us, too. If you can drive a van, that's great for us. If you can give us an hour, if you can give us two hours, if you can tidy up, if you can sort clothes, we can do all those things during the day. We don't ask for you to commit to the same day every week. If you find Monday suits you this week, but it's Friday the next week. That's fine, too. Um, so we do try to work around people's availability. The one thing that um, probably would be much more defined would be the outreach role because we need people to come in at quarter past 10 until one in the morning. We only roster on a weekly basis, so you don't have to know months in advance when you're going to be available. If you know on a Saturday, Sunday or Monday your availability for just the week coming, great. You don't have to commit to the same day every week. You don't even have to commit every week because I know some people are not available every week. People do shift work. People are in college. People have exams. Children are sick. Lots of things come up. Real life comes up. So we do try to work around people's availability. And the only thing we ask is if you have if you have committed to a night that you give us a bit of notice if something happens and you have to cancel and that would be the only really um i suppose the only thing that would yeah exactly and that's purely from the trying to organize replacements or substitutions exactly yeah Yeah. exactly just it helps us to kind of make the operation run smoother um i do try to impress upon people if you have committed to the team for that night just be aware, you know, if you cancel at 10 o'clock, it means the team may not be able to go out because we won't have enough people to go out on the team. So I just ask people to let us know in good time. Great. So kind of in summary, what are the steps? You go onto the ICHH website and then you provide the easy. No, the easiest thing to do is ring the office, (laughs) ring the office. 888-1804. If you're in the office, whoever is on reception will give you the email address or they will send out forms to you if you provide your home address. It's as easy as that. You don't have to be technologically minded, as I mentioned before. Um, You can fill the forms out by hand. You can fill them out online. But uh, we do ask that you return them then either by post or drop in to see us in the office. It's as easy as that. Perfect. That sounds great. So an interesting kind of intersection is kind of how legal issues impact on homelessness. And you were saying that you've kind of experienced that in your role volunteering. Well, I suppose because I'm here so long, um, I've gotten involved in a few different areas here. So occasionally it might happen where we have a case that comes in 
maybe a child is there or um, somebody out of a domestic violence situation. And because I might be the only female in the building at the time, I will step in as well. But it does amaze me um, how the law hasn't really kept up with people's situations or councils haven't kept up with people's situations. Um, Ireland has changed in a very short period of time and we would have situations where um, a family break up and you know one person stays in the home. Maybe they have a mortgage, maybe it's social housing, um, maybe it's a council house, whatever it may be. But the person that leaves that home is deemed to be to have a home mm. because either if they're a mortgage holder they have a home they have an interest in a home if they're a council tenant well they got a home with the other council tenant so the the council doesn't want to know them and while they're homeless statistically they're not homeless because they're deemed to have a home and these are people then who really despair of what's going to happen to them because with the rental market the way it is It's bad enough trying to keep one home with children in it without trying to keep a second home. And unless you're quite well off, you're not going to be able to do that. So the system hasn't kept up to help people in these situations. And that's just one situation, one type of situation. And that just that really upsets me, I have to say. That's something that, you know, I really don't understand why the system can't be a bit more flexible than that. Um, I only heard recently that uh, women who are in refuges who can't go home, they're not homeless. They're in a refuge with nowhere to go, but they're not homeless. It's like they're kind of compartmentalised yes, for statistical exactly. reasons in another category. Yeah, they're but just technically, yeah they yeah. feel homeless. Yeah. They feel they don't have a place where it's well, steady. Well, technically and they are. I mean, a women's refuge or similar refuge is only a short term stop to try to get somewhere else to live away from whatever the the violent situation that these people have been in. So they are homeless and they are looking for a home. So, you know, they shouldn't be they shouldn't be taken out of the statistics. They should be in the statistics. Technically, they're homeless until a proper home can be found for them away from the situation that they were in already. But a women's refuge is not a home. It's it's a stopgap. It's a stopgap. Yeah. So there are a lot of situations like this that have amazed me. People who are technically homeless, but they're not classed as homeless. Mm. Once they have a roof, we can forget about them. Basically, that's yeah. what we're being told. Yeah, people are slipping through the cracks. Right. They like are all, yeah. all the time, and I think that's one thing. As as Anne said, there, you know, you're seeing one parent maybe sleeping in a car, for example, because as Anne said, they're not eligible to declare as homeless or to avail of emergency accommodation because they might have their name on a mortgage or a rent book or social housing or whatever it might the case may be. But you know, as Anne said, there. There's so many people in this country that aren't included in the overall figures, which is why I said earlier about the actual figure being over 10,000, because, you know, at one point the Taoiseach tried to compare us to other countries and said that we didn't have a homeless problem as bad compared to our peer countries. And that was completely false because, number one, he was using an outdated report. And number two, he was comparing us to countries that include people, you know, women and children in refuges. It included people sleeping out in the streets. It included people couch surfing or they can't afford to rent or buy. Those figures were included in other countries, but they're not here. So any attempt to compare us and say, well, we're not as bad as these other countries was completely false. Yeah.
So Brian, you were saying there that you manage the social media platforms for ICHH. Could you just talk to me a bit about like if you've any negative experiences, trolling people, commenting like really offensive or harmful comments underneath material that you've shared? Yeah, by the law of averages, I think you're always going to get people that that troll, people that maybe don't think the same way that you do. Now, I mean, overall, I'd say 95% of the people that engage with us and respond to us are on the same page as us. They understand that homelessness is a big problem. But, you know, we do get a lot of trolls. Um, for example, we might put a story up about a family who are living in a hotel room and they've been in that hotel room for 12 months. You could have a mother, a father and two children, all of the children's school clothes, their school books, their toys, everything that they own is in that hotel room. They have no cooking facility, they have no cleaning facility. And we we would often get people responding to us saying, well, they're not homeless then. You know, some people have a definition of homeless as they need to be sleeping on the street. And that's not the case. I mean, we all know that a home is a house or it's an apartment. And it's somewhere that you're secured, you have a secure tenure, you're going to be there for X amount of years. A hotel room is never, never, ever will be a home. And we would have to deal with, with these types of trolls. Now, my personal way of dealing with it is I'll always respond once and I, I'll maybe point out where I feel that they're wrong and what they're saying or, or that they're not being fair. If someone gets completely abusive, I pretty much ruthless and I will delete them and block them from the page because... I've seen situations where families that have given us their story or have gone out publicly to depress themselves with their story and they get an awful response, particularly, I think, on Twitter. I think Twitter is, is, is a place where you see more and more of these it's accounts. It's a different atmosphere maybe than Facebook or Instagram or other The one platforms. thing about Facebook, I think, is that people on Facebook register with their own name and they stand over their comments, whereas on Twitter, you'll see a lot of profiles with people that don't have a profile picture or it's a, it's not a picture of themselves. It's They're not registered under their real name. So they're a complete keyboard warrior hiding behind a facade and a, and a fake profile. And I would be a lot less engaging with those types of people because you know the one thing i think twitter does that that facebook doesn't is you could go onto their twitter page you can see who they're messaging who they're replying to so you get a gauge very quickly for okay well this person is just a troll that goes out targeting people consistently and it's very easy to block those sort of people from the page but there has been a few times where from the ICHH account, you know, I've had to step in and defend people that are homeless who are getting abuse from from an outside source. And, you know, I've stepped in more than once and, and made my opinion and, and kind of put my point across, but then also messaged the person that's homeless and said, look, if this is the sort of person you're dealing with, just block them because you're going through enough mental stress. You're going through enough pressure trying to get out of the situation you're in without some faceless troll that you've never met making you feel worse so i think people have to be a bit more ruthless and report these people especially if they're being abusive yeah of course and have you i know you said that you worked as a charity partner with facebook do you think that there's a change in kind of approach with some of the social media groups in how they're maybe giving you guidance on it or it's just something you have a sense of how you you respond to it yeah it's more so something i i've learned from my own experiences and the time on the page yeah. you know um i suppose even though we're a voluntary organization and none of us get paid you know to a degree we have to be professional in how we we deal with people and you know you might not necessarily type the words of what you actually physically would want to say to these people because you couldn't do that. It wouldn't be a good representation of the organisation. Um, but sometimes you have to engage with these people and tell them, you know, your attitude is wrong and 
to, to target someone or give them abuse is wrong and at every level. I mean, bullying is something that starts in, in schools around this country and you're trying to teach kids that bullying is wrong, yet you have grown-ups that sit behind a keyboard and feel that they, they can bully people that are homeless or bur- bully people that work for organisations like ourselves. And I, I just think those people, you know, need to really, in a lot of ways, look at themselves and have a long, hard look in the mirror. I always say, would you have the guts to say those things to someone's face? And 99.9% of them wouldn't. Yeah, of course. So Anne and Brian, thank you so much. You've given us an insight into volunteer manager and communications manager and really interesting overview about what your work entails and also when people you know get in touch and maybe want to volunteer or read communications or read stuff online, how that kind of was put together. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Current. Remember you can tweet us at at current ddr or emails at current at dublin digital radio.com subscribe to us on itunes and follow us on the dublin digital radio soundcloud